Hey guys, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime, and today I'm going to be telling you about this app called Anchor. It helped me start my podcast, and it can help you start yours. Anchor is a free app that lets you use it from your phone or your computer. So if you want to do it on the go, and you want to just record, you can record one. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more to get your own podcast out there. You can make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you want in just one podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I did. What are you waiting for? Hey guys, welcome back to Just a Grown True Crime. I'm your host, Heaven. Um, so we tonight are going to be discussing the second and final part of Carla Homoka and Paul Bernardo. If you have not listened to part one, I recommend you go back and listen to that and then come and listen to this one. Um, a bit of a recap for you guys. So we learned about Paul's family, his dynamic, Carla, her family and her dynamic, some some of the rapes that Paul did, what they did to Carla's sister Tammy, and that was basically part one. In part two, we're going to go forward with the rest of the victims, and we're going to talk about their trials and all the weird shit that happened. So there's a lot to get in, and I want to just hop right into it. And our first one we are going to start with is Leslie McHaffey, and we're just going to hop right in here. So in the early morning on June 15th in 1991, Paul took a detour through through Burlington, halfway between Toronto and St. Catharines, to steal some license plates, where he ended up actually finding Leslie. The 14-year-old had missed her curfew after attending a funeral, and she was locked out of the house and had been unable to actually find anybody to let her crash at their place. That's so sad. Just for overnight until she was going to go back the next morning. Paul then approached Leslie and told her he was looking in he was looking to go break into some neighbors houses okay she was unfazed and she just ended up asking if he had any cigarettes as Paul led her to his car he blindfolded her forced her into the vehicle and drove her to the part Dow house where he informed Carla that they had a playmate. Paul and Carla subsequently videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Leslie, all while listening to Bob Marley and David Bowie. At one point, Paul said, you're doing so good, Leslie, 
a damned good job. And then he added, the next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. That's sick. And I got chills just as I said that. Right now, you're scoring perfect, he also said. On another segment of the tape played in for Paul's trial, the assault escalated. Leslie cried out in pain and begged Paul to stop. The crown... The Crown's description of the scene, he was sodomizing her while her hands were bound with twine. Later, Leslie told Paul that her blindfold seemed to be slipping, an ominous development as it signaled the possibility that she actually might be able to identify both of her tormentors if permitted to live the following the following day paul claimed carla fed her a lethal dose of the halcyon and then carla actually claimed that instead paul strangled her so it sounded like they were like pinning it against each other the pair then put her body in the basement after the homokas and their remaining their remaining daughter Lori had left and Paul and Carla decided the best way to dispose of the evidence would be to dismember her Leslie in in case oh so Leslie was encased um in pieces of cement um Paul actually went and bought a dozen bags of cement at a hardware store I just lost my place hold on uh, so he went and purchased the dozen bags of cement at a hardware store the following day. And for some reason, he kept the receipts, which good for the prosecution, bad for Paul, because it proved to be damning evidence against him at his trial. So, Paul, thank you for fucking up. Paul then used his grandpa's circular saw to cut Leslie's body. Paul and Carla then made numerous tricks, not tricks, numerous trips to the dump to dump the cement blocks in Lake Gibson, 18 kilometers south of Port Dowhouse. At least one of the blocks weighed 200 pounds and proved beyond the pair's patience or abilities to sink. It rested near shore where a father and son then eventually found the piece while they were on a fishing expedition and it was discovered 
June 29, 1991. Leslie's orthodontic appliance proved definite in identifying her. Moving on to the next one, the next victim. Her name is Kristen French. On the afternoon of April 16, 1992, Carla and Paul were driving through St. Catharines to look for some potential victims. It was after school hours on the day before Good Friday. Students were still going home, but by... But, um... The street, the large streets were actually pretty empty. And as they passed Holy Cross Secondary School and a, a main Catholic high school in the city's north end, they spotted Kristen. A 15-year-old student walking briskly to her nearby home. The couple pulled up into a parking lot of a nearby Grace Lutheran Church and Carla got out of the car with a map in her hand pretending to need assistance. As Kristen walked over and I guess said, hey, do you need any help? And Carla said, oh yeah, we're actually looking for directions. So when Carla was, not Carla, I'm sorry. When Kristen was looking at the map, Paul ended up attacking her from behind um, but, and put a knife up to her and forced her into the front seat of their car. From the back seat, Carla controlled her by pulling her hair down. Kristen had always taken the same route to her house every single day. And you know, guys... That's not a good thing. Switch up your routines. Don't do anything the same. I know like we get into a routine of like doing it this way. But you know some sick people are actually out there who you know like who watch people who do this. So they get your routine down. It's it's fucked up. Um, It normally took about 15 minutes for her to get home so she could attend to her dog's needs. Soon after she should have arrived, her parents became convinced that something, not something that she had meant um, with, was meant with foul play. And they notified police and within two, and within 24 hours, the NRG police had assembled a team and searched the area along her route. And found several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different aspects. This giving police a fairly clear picture. An additional one. And they also found um, one of Kristen's shoes. And it was recovered from the parking lot where she was taken. Underscored by the seriousness of the abduction. Over the three days of Easter weekend, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves torturing 
raping and sodomizing Kristen, forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and to behave submissively to Paul. Later at his trial, they said that Paul intended to kill her because she was never blindfolded and she could identify her captors. When Paul was out buying pizza on April 18th, he was spotted by a woman named Carrie Patrick, whom he stalked the previous month. I'm not going to get too far into her because we go back to Carrie Patridge. Um, So keep her in your noggin. Um, the following day, the couple murdered Kristen just before they ended up going to Carla's parents' house for Easter dinner. You know, normal, right? A lot of people who just kill someone are like, you know, all this is making me hungry. Let's go to my parents' house and eat Easter dinner and act like we didn't do anything wrong. And this is a normal Easter Sunday. Carla and Paul, what are y'all doing? It is not normal. Um, Carla later later testified at her trial that Paul had strangled Christian for exactly for exactly seven minutes. That's what I thought, but I did not want to be wrong. Wow, Carla over here just watched the whole thing. She was like, yep, Paul did this, and I sat here and watched it. That's totally normal. Not really, guys. It's not normal. But Paul said that Carla had beaten Kristen with a rubber mallet because she had tried to escape and that Kristen ended up being strangled with a noose tied around her neck secured to a hope chest. Immediately thereafter, Carla went to fix her hair. So, Carla, I don't even know, girl. You guys are just fucked up. Kristen's body was found nude in a ditch on April 30th, 1992, in Burlington, approximately 45 minutes from St. Catharines, and a short distance from the cemetery where Leslie was where some of her pieces were buried. Her body then had been wasted and her hair had been cut all off. It originally, the police or like the forensic originally thought that it had been cut off because um, for a trophy. But Carla testified that the hair was cut off because it was to impede identify identification. So they thought if we cut her hair off, they won't be able to say, okay, this is this person. You know, people don't do stuff by dental records, but all right. I mean, I don't know if they did back then, but it was in the 1990s, so I assume they would. But Okay. And now we're going to talk about some other potential or possible victims of Carla and Paul. Victims of Carla and Paul. So shortly after Tammy's funeral, 
her parents went out of town and Lori went to her grandparents in I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Miss Agnuga? That just sounds wrong. Leaving the house empty on the weekend of January 12th, 1991. According to Stephen Williams, Paul abducted, abducted a girl to get her back to the house and raped her while Carla watched. Afterward, he dropped... He dropped her off on a deserted road near Lake Gibson. Paul and Carla simply refer to her as January Girl. Um, I don't know any of the names of these ones, but they believe that these victims, like I said, were possible or potential victims that they were involved with. So I don't know names to these. Then, on April 16, 1991, Paul abducted a 14-year-old girl who was warming up for duties as a coxswine on one of the local row teams. The girl, the girl was distracted by a blonde, a blonde woman who waved at her from afar. And then Paul was able to drag her into a a Shrewsbury bush near the the rowing club. There he sexually assaulted her, forced her to remove all of her clothes, and wait five minutes, during which he then just disappeared. On July twenty eighth, in nineteen ninety one. Paul stalked a woman named Sydney Kirshen, and she was 21, after he saw her driving home from work. On August 9, 1991, he resumed stalking her, but this time she took evasion, evasion action and she actually stopped at her boyfriend's house just prior to his arrival. After the boyfriend spotted Paul, he decided to chase him, and he then came across Paul's gold Nissan and took note of his license plate. The couple reported to the police, who then established that the car belonged to Paul Kenneth Bernardo, and an NRP officer visited the Bernardo house, where the car was parked in the driveway but did not pursue the matter nor did he actually submit a official police report which stupid on them because if someone comes to you and is like someone's stalking me and you know you drive out there and you go okay this is linked to him um we should follow up and ask questions they just chose not to which shame on you guys on November 30th, 1991, 14-year-old Terry Anderson vanished about three blocks from the parking lot where Kristen would be abducted and never returned. Terry was a ninth grade student at Lakeport Secondary School next door to Kristen's school. 
Terry and Kristen disappeared within two kilometers of each other, which, that is so bizarre. In April 1992, the NRP said they had no evidence to suggest a link. But in May 1992, Terry, Terry's body was found in the water at Port Dow House. Okay? The medical examiner, examiner saw no evidence of foul play, despite the difficulties of determining such factors in the body that had been body that had been in the water for six months. The coroner's ruling that her death was by drowning, probably as a result to drinking and taking LSD, probably as a result of drinking. Oh, I'm sorry, I just read that. Scratch that. So they ruled it as her drinking, taking the LSD, was controversial in light of Leslie and Kristen's murders. A newspaper clipping found during the police search of the Bernardo's house described. Let me flip my page. Described a rape that occurred in Hawaii during the couple's honeymoon there. The presence of the article, the rape similarity to Paul's. Mondis Opernidan, that's definitely wrong, and its occurrences during the Bernardo's presence led police to speculate on Bernardo's involvement. Law enforcement officials had both sides of the border have stated their belief that Paul was responsible for this rape. But due to extra... Hold on, I'm trying to think of how to say it. Extradition issues, the case was never prosecuted. And I said, what a shame. (laughs) That's sad. In 1997, Derek Finkel's book, No Claim to Mercy was published, which presented evidence tying Paul to the murder of Elizabeth Bain, who disappeared on June 19, 1990, only three weeks after the last known attack of the Scarborough rapist. Bain told her mother she was going to check the tennis schedule on the Scarborough campus of University of Toronto. Just three days later, her car was found with a large blood stain in the back seat. Robert Baltvich, who was consistent, who consistently maintained his innocence, was convicted on March thirty first, nineteen ninety two, of second degree, second degree murder. In depth. In death of his girlfriend. Now you're probably wondering, why am I talking about somebody else? It's all going to make sense, I promise. At trial, his lawyer suggested that the un- unidentified Scarborough rapist 
was responsible for this crime. He served eight years of his life term before before being released pending his appeal. In September 2004, his appeal was processed. His lawyers alleged that he had been wrongful, wrongfully convicted and that Paul actually was guilty of the murder. On December 2nd in 2004, the Ontario Court of Appeal set aside the conviction. On July 15th in 2005, Ontario's Ministry of the Attorney General announced that Robert Baltfitch would face a new trial and on on April 22nd, 2008, after a series of pretrial motions including the presentation of evidence implicating Paul in the murders of Elizabeth Bain, Crown Attorney Philip Cotton advised the court that he would be calling no evidence and asked the jury to find Robert not guilty on second-degree murder. That's all I could find on that. So that's where it, like, ended. On March 29th in 1992, so we're going back again, Paul stalked and videotaped Shayna and Carrie Patrich. Remember how I said we'd go back to Carrie? Well, Carrie had a sister named Shayna. At least that's how I think it's pronounced. And he stalked them from his car and followed them to their parents' house. The Patrich sisters incorrectly recorded his license plate number. And then Shayna reported the incident to the NRP on March 31st, 1992. And she was given an incident number should further information develop. With Kristen French, I don't think I meant to put, I think I meant to put Carrie Patrich, and then I said, remember her? Under Carvesgard on April 18th, 1992. I don't know why I put that. Paul went out to buy dinner, and he went to rent a movie, and he was spotted by Carrie, I put Kristen, so sorry, Carrie, who attended to track him down to his house despite losing him. When, um, and she ended up getting a better description of his license plate and car, which she then reported to NRP. But this information, unfortunately, was mishandled by police. And slipped into the black hole in which Judge Archie Campbell, 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 would refer, would refer in the Campbell Report of 1996, an inquiry to police mishandling of evidence in the case. In 2006, Paul confessed to a 1987 assault against a 15-year-old girl. In 
another man named Anthony Hainmayer, who had been convicted of that assault and served the sentence for it on June June twenty fifth, two thousand eight, the Court of Appeal for Ontario overturned. overturned that conviction and they exonerated Haymayer. Haymayer. So now we're going to go back a little bit because now we're going to start um, getting into the trial stuff and stuff like that. So on January 6, 1993, Carla was admitted to St. Catherine's General Hospital after Paul beat her viciously with a flashlight. I said ouch because that would seem to hurt. Yes. He was arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon. And then he was released on bail. Okay. But Carla actually never returned to the couple's home. I don't know where she went, but she didn't go to the home. Maybe to her parents, but it didn't specify. A month later, the the century of forensic science finally matched that Paul's DNA matched with the Scarborough rapist. And then the police ended up putting Paul under surveillance and they tapped his phone. So now we're going to talk about Carla's plea bargain, which, hold on to your seats, guys. Um, Carla was initially uncooperative with police, but after consoling with her lawyer, she said she would testify against Paul under the condition of being granted immunity for prosecution. The Attorney General for Ontario would not agree to immunity, but was willing to consider a reduced sentence. Because he was like probably thinking, yeah, yeah, I know you have something to do with this. There's no way you're getting immunity because you need to pay for your crimes, Carla. Okay? You need to pay for them. But I'll shorten your sentence. Make it worth my while and then we'll talk. I think that's how that conversation went. On February 17th, Paul was then arrested for the murders of Leslie and Kristen. And all of the Scarborough rapes. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. Police subjected Carla to four days of interrogation. And like I said in the beginning, she was very good at trying to put the blame on Paul. And she tried to portray herself as one of the victims. So, what did she do? She blamed Paul for her sister's death. She described how Paul kidnapped Leslie from the yard from her parents' home, and how she and Paul had lured Kristen to their car in the parking lot. She said both girls were used as sex slaves before Paul strangled them to death. God, that scared me. I heard a clicking. Whew, my heart just like beat it a little bit. I'm sorry. Got scared. Kristen was made to watch a tele- televised news broadcast of her father's emotional 
likely for her safe return. Carla claimed that Paul had boasted to her raping, oh, raping 30 women. Carla described herself as a battered wife who was forced to participate in Paul's crimes and live in terror of him. Into that, I say, ladies and gentlemen, bullshit. Okay? Bullshit. Carla, don't don't lie. Okay? Don't don't try to make yourself look like the hero because you know, I'm gonna save my comments for the end. Alright. A search of their home turned up a list of the Scarborough rapist tapes, books of deviant sexual nature, a hunting knife, handcuffs, and a videotape of Paul and Carla engaging in sexual activities. With two unidentified women, Carla was clearly a willing participant in both encounters. She admitted to the police that one of the girls had been drugged, and was later unaware that she had been raped. Or that's supposed to be aware. I put unaware, but one of the two. And you guys want to know what Carla got for her snitching on Paul and being a victim? You ready? She was handed a 12-year sentence. Let that just let that sink in for a minute. A twelve year sentence, ladies and gentlemen. That's all this bitch got. Twelve years. Huh. On July nineteen ninety three, as part of a plea bargain with prosecutors, Carla was convicted after pleading guilty to two counts of manslaughter. In the Leslie and Kristen murders, she was sentenced to twelve to twelve years in prison. Like I said, I guess she was sentenced to two of them, and they were supposed to be served um, concurrently. Authorities weren't aware at that time that the initial police search of the Bernardo residence had missed a bundle of videotapes tapes that would prove to be the most damning and publicly explosive evidence in this whole entire case i'll say this once and i'll say it again um when i repeat this carla's deal with prosecutors was basically known as a deal with the devil. She played the police. And the police were like, yeah, all right, we we need you to turn on your husband. So you give us something, we'll give you something. So Carla and her lawyer probably, her, her lawyer was probably like, listen, Carla, you're going down for a lot of shit, Okay. You're gonna need to test the gut. You're gonna need to testify against your lover, husband Paul. I know you love him, 
But forget all that because if they come for Paul and go hard on him, they're going to go hard on you too and they are not going to give up. So you need to talk first and give them what they want so we can talk about a deal. That's how I envision that um, conversation going with Carla and her lawyer. Um, like I said, she basically played the victim and gotten herself a much lighter sentence. On May 6th in 1993, Paul's lawyers had retrieved six MM tapes that had been hidden in their home. They were not turned over to the police until September 22nd, 1994 for some reason. And the tape shown in very graphic detail the rape and the torture and rapes of Leslie and Kristen were all on them. And Carla appeared as Paul's consenting accomplice. Not at all frightened. Um, or, a fo- or a forced participant. By this time, the case was dominating the headlines and capturing the attention of people across North America. News of the tapes prompted public outrage. The media accused the the prosecution, like I've already said, of making a deal with the devil. Like I just said, because that's basically what it was. You made a deal with the devil. Okay? Only giving Carla that 12-year sentence in her role for her crimes, which was probably a huge slap in the face. It gets worse. Don't worry. However, the Crown said that it was obligated to stand by its agreement. Jury selection for Paul's trial began on May 1st in 1995. The Crown opened its case on May 18th. The trial lasted four months, during which Carla spent 17 court days in the witness box. Paul eventually was found guilty on all charges against him, two counts of each first-degree murder, kidnapping, forcible confinement, and aggravated sexual assault, and one count of committing an indignity to a human body. He was sentenced to life imprisonment and was declared as a dangerous offender, making parole highly unlikely. Five years later, in 2000, both the Ontario Ontario Court of Appeal and Supreme Court of Canada turned down Paul's efforts to appeal his murder convictions. In 2006, Paul's lawyer said that his client had confessed in 2005 to 10 additional sexual assaults. Since 2013, he has been incarcerated in the Millhaven Maximum Security Prison in Bath, Ontario. Carla ended up serving her 12-year-old sentence in full, and she was released from prison in 2005. Under a series of judge-imposed conditions, including restrictions on her movement, and a ban on any contact with anyone under 16 years old. But those conditions that the first judge put in were overturned by another judge only months later. 
prompting criticism from the Leslie and Kristen families. Carla then settled into Montreal, where she ended up giving birth to a son in 2007. I don't see how this woman can be allowed to have babies. They should have, like, fixed her ass up when she was in prison. And she said, they said, yeah, Carla, you're not having no babies because of what the shit you did. No. But she gave birth to a baby in 2007. She then actually tried to change her name, but it was denied. I seen, like, when I went through the Canada, um, where I got most of the stuff. I forget what it's called. Something with the can- the Canadian thing where they said she changed her name, but I looked further into it and they denied her name change, which good because people should know who you are, Carla. Carla Homoka, people should know who you are. All right. Um, she ended up getting married to her husband. To her husband, his name was Fairy. Bordalis, and he was the brother of her prison lawyer, Sylvie Bordalis. <laughs> Weird. And lastly, Paul had become eligible for day parole, which that must just be a Canada thing because we don't have that in. I mean, we don't have it in PA. I doubt we have it in the United States at all. I know we have like work release, but that's not the same thing. But so he was eligible for day parole and in 2000, in 2015 and then he was eligible for full parole in February 2018 after having served 25 years in prison. However, on October 2018, his application for both day parole and full parole were denied by a panel of the Parole Board of Canada after only... 30 minutes of deliberation. Ha, Paul. Screw you. And he is a dangerous offender, like they said. And Paul definitely, not definitely, I guess you could say definitely, definitely, or it is highly unlikely that he actually will ever be released, which he deserves to be in prison for the rest of his life. Carla still deserves to be sitting in a fucking jail cell. All right, she does not get to be free. A couple things I didn't write down that I saw, but I didn't write. Um, I think she was, like, volunteering out of school, which is just weird because you did all this stuff. And I just have, like, a lot. I have a lot of questions, you know. Since all this came out, did... Carla's parents, like, disown her from her family because I would if I were her parents. I mean, or, you know, some people are like, oh, I forgive you. But I couldn't imagine them, like, forgiving Carla because Carla killed her sister with her fiancé, boyfriend, whoever the hell he was at that time. I mean, like, what happened with that? Like, does she talk to her family? I definitely don't think she deserves to be out. I don't think you should be living free and, you know, stuff like that. I definitely think you should pay your crimes. But I also believe, you know, you might have got thought you got away with it. But one day, you'll have to answer to the big man upstairs and you'll be punished that way. I'm not going to get all religion on you, but that's my opinion. 
on that. And guys, that is the final episode of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka case. I told you I'd upload in two days, and here I am uploading in two days. I'm sorry if I'm talking fast. It's 11 o'clock, and I have work tomorrow, so I, I wanted to get this out. Um, Friday's case, I have a couple people who I want to do, but I can't pick which one. Um, if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, Just a Girl in True Crime, you can send me a Gmail at Just a Girl in True Crime. You can also follow my Facebook page, and that is Just a Girl in True Crime. I hope you enjoyed listening to this final case, this fucked up case. Maybe I'll do something like a little uh, Friday. Maybe I'll like, since I took us down a lot, maybe I'll, maybe we'll do some like spooky dooky things. <laughs> spooky do- We'll do something with like ghosts or demons, something spooky, something, like freaky. Give it a little bit of chills. Be like, okay. Um... But that is it for tonight, guys. I hope you keep listening. And thank you all for your guys' support and everything. And I'll be talking to you guys Friday.